Patana means, or the Patana is the name of a chapter in the Abhidhamma, which no one ever talks about because nobody can understand it. <laughs> and I thought you were going to ask me, what does that mean? What's it all about? But Satipatthana, the Patana in Satipatthana means, Tana means location or place. And pa is a, uh, is a, not a word, but it's a suffix or prefix or one of those things that adds emphasis to sati, which is noticing or observation, and the place of strong, insistent, continuous noticing. So we say the four satipatthanas are the four basis, the four bases of establishing mindfulness, the body, the mind, feelings, and mental objects. So the four satipatthanas, the four places for establishing continuous and strong and forceful noticing are satipatthana. The question is, do you accrue negative karma from your thoughts as well as your actions? Let me talk about thoughts first. You'll notice sometimes in your practice that you're sitting there just minding your own business, being mindful, and somebody beside you puts this nasty thought in your mind. You know, it just comes in. It's just boop. No negative karma. If you notice it. If you don't notice it and you say, yeah, that person really is a jerk. Ah, negative karma. So, Thoughts that arise as a karmic result of previous actions is not karma in and of itself. If we do not notice it, again, the feeling, the mental feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness, if we don't notice it, we will act, this is link seven to eight, remember? We will act, and in that action, based on ignorance, we create new karma. The trick is you have to catch the feeling of the thought. You've got to catch the thought. The plan, the notice, the comment, the judgment, the f- whatever it is. As soon as it arises, or any subsequent reflection upon it, is karma. Generally speaking. <laughs> and thoughts are quick. Uh, she said, or she asked, if you spend some time lost in thoughts of generosity, what's the karma or something of that? This points to um, uh, an area of practice where we have to understand kind of the two, at least two levels of practice in what we're doing here. 
generally in our life, if we have thoughts of being generous, thoughts of metta, thoughts of living ethically, thoughts based upon compassion, thoughts of praise and taking refuge and uh, feeling confident in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, honoring uh, acts of wisdom and courage, and etc. Generally, these are very good karma because it generates uh, wholesome attitudes of mind, wholesome uh, mental states, and that's good. In practicing insight, there's a stage in practice where we are flooded with great Dharma thoughts. I mean, we just have so much confidence in the Dharma that our mind is filled with reverence and praise and appreciation for the Buddha, for the teachers, for the other yogis, for the staff that run this place. We just and we just think of the wonderful things we can do and being generous and Dharma and it's just a very effusive appreciation of Dharma, etc. etc. Good karma, bad insight. In this sense, it's an unconscious, essentially, it's an unconscious rambling on in thought, unnoted. Not insightful. So, please distinguish. And it happens that along with that, often, along with that quality of thinking and dwelling and ruminating and uh, not speculation so much as uh, just going on and on, there is, along with it, this unnoted, aren't I great? Isn't my practice really good? Don't I really understand this now? (laughs) That's why it's bad insight, not insightful. So that's, if you really look carefully, Even those thoughts of all of our appreciation, all of our confidence, all of our intentions to do great acts of dana and sila and metta and meditation, they arise and pass away. They're not you. And they ultimately, in and of themselves, do not bring satisfaction. Please notice that. And act on them at the appropriate time. You know, do your practice, live ethically, be generous, love. Uh, the woman behind Leah. Yeah. Yeah. It's good karma because the thoughts are rooted in the roots of those the roots of those thoughts are in generosity, love and understanding. And so they're very wholesome um, thoughts. They, are, they implicitly recognize the unity of all existence and the need to share and act compassionately to relieve our own and others' uh, difficulties and suffering in life. And so they're very skillful and wholesome because they're inclusive and they tend towards 
making ourselves and others happy. Right, right. Actions are karma. Thoughts, if we arouse them with strong intention, are karma also. The thoughts that just arise and pass away momentarily as a result of previous actions and thoughts. Not strong karma, no. But when we, when we are re- consciously and intentionally reflecting on our appreciation and understanding and generosity and the benefits and values of living as we've been living for these two months, then that, that's really intentional and conscious generation of very skillful, wholesome thoughts tending towards happiness. don't really know. I've never really read or I don't know anything about affirmations, so I don't know the motivation for them. But it would be very important to understand the motivation for any uh, affirmation. My sense is that affirmations for the enhancement of ourself out of a basis of some sort of attachment and clinging are going to have their karmic results. If they're based on attachment and clinging and greed for a sense of self, they're going to have results. (laughs) And maybe not what you think. Maybe not what you're affirming. (laughs) So I don't know, I, I can't really comment on affirmations, but if any of you are into that type of practice, look really carefully to see what it is that is the motivation, the intention behind doing it. What gets, what's the source of it? And then consider adjusting your affirmation to be, you know, a little more inclusive, a little more loving, a little more generous, and and, and understand that you also are included in that, like in practicing metta or uh, compassion. We don't exclude ourselves. So, a couple of things I want to comment in that question is, one is exploring in insight, or exploring insightfully is not thinking. It is not using logic and rational. If that's what you're doing for exploration, then that indeed is just probably unskillful reflection. If, on the other hand, you're noticing the arising and passing away of thoughts, feelings, sensations, emotions, memories, plans, etc. And you're seeing the impermanence of them, the unsatisfactory nature of them, and their out-of-controlness, so to speak. That's insight. Sometimes in the midst of our experience, it may not be so clear which is which. Just note what is happening 
moment after moment. Yeah. A brief one. This is the ability to know. Knowing. It is sometimes difficult to, to just know without knowing what's known. It is possible. Mental, or the contents of consciousness, are those mental factors that go into each moment of consciousness. Consciousness cannot arise without mental factors, like when we're caught up in an unwholesome, reactive state, the primary content of the mind is aversion. And noticing that as one of the foundations for the establishment of awareness. So it's not like the hindrances are outside of the field of awareness. They're not. They're not bad in that sense. They too are one of the bases for establishing mindfulness. All of the hindrances, all of the judgments, all of the thoughts, plans, fears, joy, sorrows, other contents of mind are joy, contentment, happiness, mindfulness, concentration, confidence, lightness, energy, tranquility, understanding, compassion, method. Noticing these as a foundation of mindfulness. They, in and of themselves, are not the knowing faculty of the mind. Aversion is not knowing anything. It is coloring our knowing with distancing. Clinging is not knowing anything. It is the color or the flavor of our knowing a certain object. Clinging, grasping, sticking, uh, uh, attachment. So those consciousness itself and the mental contents are two of the bases. If you were knowing that you were knowing, that in itself is the object. So, joyful knowing. <clears throat> Excuse me, the question is about what are the other conditioning uh, agents in our experience other than karma? This, um, this question is uh, found in the, uh, the answer to this question is found in the chapter of the Abhidhamma that nobody talks about. Next question? <laughs> no. Just uh, just as just a point to one example in one area of other uh, conditioning influences. If we take our experience of the body. Kama 
results, a past karma has resulted in us having a body at this time with senses and the whole package. And so the current experience of the body is intimately wound up or entwined with karma. But there are other conditioning elements in the moment, this moment's experience of the body. For example, it's a little bit chilly environmentally. And when it's cold outside, the body has certain reactions, and we experience it. The weather outside has nothing to do with karma, and yet it affects our experience of the body, or if it's very hot. Body sweats and we get whatnot. It has nothing to do with karma. It has to do with environmental conditions, the weather. Or another conditioning uh, agent in the experience of the body is what we eat. If you eat hot food, well, you have a certain experience in the body. If you eat cooling foods, you have a certain experience. If you don't eat, you have another experience. Nutriment in food is a conditioning influence in our experience of the body. So there's karma, environmental conditions, the food we eat, the quality of our mind. If we're very depressed, unhappy, gloomy, sad, mad, angry, something, we have a... that quality of mind has a conditioning effect on the body. We feel tight, contracted, and heavy, blah, flat, whatever. If we're anticipating the end of the retreat, and pretty light, and happy, and anticipating, and joyful, and thinking of falling in love, and hey, hey, we feel pretty, the body feels pretty up, and light, and bubbly, and effervescent, and the quality of mind conditions our experience of the body. Another conditioning agent is the particular object that we're experiencing. We can look at someone of the same or opposite sex, and we can think, look, I'm not attracted to that person. And then we can look at another object, another person, just a different object, and it changes the quality of our mind. The object is a conditioning agent in our experience. And there are numerous other conditioning agents, but just to identify a few of them. I've promised several yogis here that I'll prepare a talk next year on the conditional relations, that chapter in the Abhidhamma, but not this year. (laughs) Experientially, we may notice one 
experience predominantly and many others peripherally. And that is still one-pointed awareness. So we don't need to evaluate it that way. It's like looking at the brightest star in the sky at night, seeing that star and being aware and noticing hundreds of others around it, but noticing that one particularly. Very focused, clear, precise, and yet noticing a great many other things. Same with any experience in our meditation. We can be very focused, very still, very connected to one experience, the breath or any other experience, and simultaneously be aware and noticing other things. That's okay. Just noticing foreground experience, noticing it, what happens to it, and then where the mind goes next. There are times in practice when the field of objects uh, condenses considerably and we can be aware of just one minute object to the exclusion of everything else. And it really uh, is a momentariness that is pretty distinctive in that things emerge out of something. Or they just appear in the mind alone, clear, precise, and then followed by another one. And sometimes our attention in mindfulness can be so rapid and clear that we notice it that way. But that's not a particular experience to go looking for. And nor is it particularly significant. It just, sometimes the factors of mind mature and come into balance in such a way that that's our experience. If we are attached to that experience as indicative of something, we haven't let it go while we're anticipating or we're basically we're clinging. And so not to get caught in any particular degree of clarity in knowing and not to judge it as, or not to value it as something other than this moment's experience and attempt to be awake and aware. But part of maturing practice is the quality of mindfulness that is so precise that with a single noting of a single object, we know many things. And that's not scattered, unfocused, or you know, not one-pointed. It is very much so. It's just that the quality of wisdom is very expansive. Sometimes come. Don't get stuck on my opinions. (laughs) (laughs) I think if we asked that question of everyone in the room, we'd get as many different answers as there are people in the room. What, is, what does spiritual mean? What is a spiritual experience? What is spiritual practice? What is... 
I'm not asking you all, please, but <laughs> it has something to do with waking up. Best to discover for yourself. Yeah. Make things very complex and to think that to define spirituality or spiritual life takes at least a book or two. It might not. If you really look carefully at your experience of what is most imbued with spirit, it might be a single phrase. But we in the West like to proliferate a lot. thing we do to break our unconscious habits, mental or physical, and to bring uh, awareness and uh, conscious intent into our lives more frequently serves, serves awakening. And whether you do it in retreat in a very intensively focused way like we do here, or you do it in your daily life, no difference. Because it serves to um, uh, you know, it's like attaching a flag to a certain behavior so that every time that behavior comes up, you know, the flag waves in front of you and you say, whoa, time to wake up. What am I doing here? Oh, I'm doing, brushing my teeth, reaching for the doorknob, doing whatever it is I do frequently and want to wake up to. And so it's helpful to really uh, consciously do that in your life here or home or anywhere else. But you may notice that like reaching for the doorknob, this week you can really work at it and develop a lot of awareness around it. And then your attention fades away for a couple of weeks. And you can do the same thing again three weeks later and you get the same benefit of increasing again. And it's not that you aren't it's not that you've dropped back and you've got to do that all over again. Anything serves to increase the frequency of noting. Anything that you do intentionally with, with awareness serves to increase the rate or the frequency of noting. And it can mature at that level. And the same practice can take you up again from that level. So it's, that's why we keep saying, come back to the breath, over and over and over again. It's not like you finally get it and you don't have to pay attention anymore. Hey, the breath is it for the rest of your practice. I mean, you don't graduate to something else. That's it, folks. Get it. Really. I mean, you can always come back to the breath because the mind's always wondering. It is. I mean... <laughs> what an unglamorous path we have here. <laughs> so, enjoy your day. <laughs> Waves, waves seem permanent. Waves seem like a single wall of water moving across the surface of the ocean. But it's never the same wave. What's moving is an energy field, energy waves, invisible, that just keep lifting the water. They keep lifting the water. Keep lifting different water along the way. Even when the wave breaks on shore, it's 
not the same water for two seconds in a row. Similarly, with your thoughts, they are not the same thoughts. They are just recurrent uh, appearances, recurrent arisings of thoughts that are similar, but in no way the same as previous thoughts. What might be behind them are certain patterns that keep them appearing, keep them arising, and what might be where you're hooked in, in sort of a, an obsessive rotation or, you know, recirculation in, in uh, um, river terminology, whitewater river terminology. There are certain kind of holes, they call them holes, but they're, they're real, they get, they're big and they're bad holes, or some that you don't want to go through. <laughs> so one of the holes that we don't want to go through is up in a river that I've been to in Maine. It's called Maytag as in Maytag washing machine, you know? Because you get caught in it, you get recirculated. You just go around and around. In the same way, we have these patterns that are like Maytag consciousness, Maytag mind. They just recirculate. But it's, it's really different water coming up, or different thoughts coming up. Around the patterns, you may come to know in time where you get hooked, where you get, uh, you know, if it's some kind of anticipation, some form of wanting, some form of, of expectation. But you try to get a deeper feel for the mental moods that are helping the pattern of recirculation. That's right. Patterns are recirculating. They're just going around and around. They, they are also mental moods that, are, that there's some way that the mind is spinning out around them. They're, they're also different. Behind them are certain feelings that need to be, that are hidden, that need to be seen and felt, you know, when they're ready to come up. That's why patterns are repeating in our life, in our psyche. The certain unfelt experience, when we're ready to open to it, it'll come up. It'll be, it'll appear, we can then feel it, and that pattern becomes uh, at least more, less attached, more thin, more workable. Uh, motivation, I think, for for anything we do, any kind of relationship or with a person or with the world comes down to um, uh, harming or not harming, generosity or uh, excessive attachment, um, contraction or liberation. So we can, whether it's a relationship, our own relationship with ourselves or with anybody across the board, that, to me, is the underlying um, uh, guideline for, or value for what you want. So, if, you choose, if one chooses a relationship and your priority is to become free, then that relationship helps actually probably lift a lot of things that prevent freedom. You see a lot of attachment, or you see a lot of clinging, or you see a lot of anger, and if the agreement is mutual, the relationship becomes a container in which to deal with all these energies. You know, it's the same marriage or partnership becomes the monastery. Yeah, and, and you use it as a crucible to, to open to the difficulty and to open to the beauty. What was your second question? 
a lot of the stories around the Bodhisattva are archetypal. And there's, there's meaning in that that can be applied to whatever our situation is, in or out of partnership. That real renunciation is an inward act, uh, like, the, like with generosity. It's not so much what we do, but what we are. So it's that inner spirit of renunciation. And there, sometimes it, it does entail an outer action. Uh, Aung San Suji in Burma is... If she has. She can exile. She can be exiled anytime she wants and go home to her husband and kids in in London. She's choosing to do this for her own spiritual work, and um, uh, as a symbol to the liberation of Burma. So, whether our renunciation is expressed outwardly, it's really an inward act that is rooted in our value of freedom and liberation and authenticity. Uh, just a, it um, wasn't only one thing, it's, I think a series of events that mostly I stumbled into. And uh, the question is, how did I come about beginning to share the Dharma? Um, and um, uh, I guess two or three things, being so moved by it myself and so completely impressed in how it changed my own life over time. Uh, that, that um, wanting to share that, feeling, feeling the suffering of beings, uh, my own included, and wanting to share what I felt and saw had a direct relationship to the alleviation of that suffering, and, uh, and nudges from my teacher, Upandita, um, when I was practicing with him. And, and then, um, uh, and just for me, it was quite slow coming back from Asia and, and working at home in Honolulu and then being asked just to start classes here and there uh, and being very, in fact, totally terrified of saying anything, speaking about anything and having to very slowly kind of work through all that, be in touch with the motivation. It comes right down to motivation, both in uh, how we share Dhamma and how we hear it. You know, what, what, are we sharing it? to really transmit uh, a liberating um, teaching? Or is it for some other purpose, some other gain? Yeah. Can you describe the difference between... Near enemy of uh, metta is any form of attached love or any dependent love or any love that's conditional. Um, and it would be the difference between the metta that's not dependent, say, on sense pleasures or anyone's response to our love and so forth, and a love that is dependent, say, on uh, pleasures of the senses or is dependent on them reciprocating in some way. The near enemy of mudita is any form of attached attachment to joy, any conditionality around that joy. Um, has anyone used the example of, that I like to use about lottery? So, say your best friend wins the, 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 the lottery, you know, the $10 million lottery. So, you may feel a lot of semi-mudita <laughs> toward that friend because, hey, it's great they won all this money, you know, and it's great you're also their best friend and that you, <laughs> and you're thinking of this little piece of land out in western Massachusetts and maybe they can help you out. So, there's, there's not that pure, unconditional 
letting go into their joy, but some kind of hook into that. With depth of wisdom, there's nothing in the conditional world that's that's permanent. Let me make that clear. Even repeating patterns aren't permanent. It's just a pattern due to conditions that keep revolving, keep coming around. So an insight is the wisdom into seeing that. We may be stuck with the pattern our whole lifetime. The deeper the insight, the more free we are of the pattern. When the insight is complete and full, we're totally free of such a pattern. So it's in, in some patterns we can see, just in the length, the time of this retreat, you may find, you may already notice or you may notice when you go home that certain things that you did kind of habitually or um, uh, obsessively, you may suddenly notice a few weeks down the line that you notice that it's gone. It's not something you suddenly realize in the insight, but something you, you've done all your life or for years and years, you'll say, gee, I don't do that anymore. And other things that you do a lot out of you know, uh, this relationship of... Um, of habit, uh, uncomfortable habit or obsessive habit, you'll see that you do less of, or you see that you don't react to as much. And still other things are quite deeply lodged, you know, and it might take a few more three-month retreats or a few more (laughs) lifetimes to really get disengaged from it. (laughs) Good luck. Generally speaking, uh, you could think of them as being the same or great overlapping. Uh, they're different lists. So, you know, in the, <laughs> the Buddhist teachings, is great on lists. Uh, and, and often you find correspondences between two different lists of things. Generally speaking, I think there is a big overlapping because the, the skanda of mental formations has to, or includes all the mental factors all the qualities of mind other than feeling and perception. Yeah, yeah, 52 mental factors. And the the third foundation of mindfulness is uh, mindfulness of mind and all its associated states. So it sounds like it's pretty much the same. You can ask Steve later for further details. I would, it sounds like it's getting too uh, complicated. Uh, mostly in the practice, uh, you want to emphasize the awareness of what's predominant. You know, so it's really just sitting and being with uh, the predominant aspect of the phenomena. So, for example, sometimes uh, the feeling quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness really stands out. Other times it doesn't. Other times the actual nature of the physical sensation stands out, whether it's pressure or heat or whatever. Um, Sometimes different emotions stand out. As I mentioned, all five aggregates are are happening together, but they're not always equally predominant. So basically, I'd keep it simple. Sort of an exercise. Uh 
proximity is wonderful. <laughs> I think the problem in the beginning is perhaps more than any of the others, it gets mixed up with its near enemy, which is indifference. You know, so as we're beginning to practice it, I think often the mind may slip into that quality of indifference. You know, all beings are the heirs of their own karma. You know, and it's, it could feel like just a pulling away, a disengagement. Uh, but that's not real equanimity. That's more when it's slipping into you know, something that approximates it, but is actually unwholesome. Equanimity I don't know how much it was talked about in, in the different talks, but really one of the one of the beautiful aspects of it is its impartiality. You know, in the images used of the sun shining on the earth, it doesn't choose to to shine on one place rather than another. It's all encompassing. With that with that quality of taking it all in, or being impartial. So when we're in a state of equanimity, the mind is not, uh, what's the word, like contracted or exclusive in any way in its relationship to other beings. And in the equanimity factor, there's really uh, the flavor of wisdom. You know, because we're understanding the lawfulness of it all. So it's impartial, it's balanced, it's spacious, it's even. Not bad. <laughs> and it's very, uh, because of these qualities, it's extremely... Uh, I don't know what the right word is. You could say grounded, as opposed to kind of up here. You know, it's, it doesn't have the excitement. It doesn't have the glamour of metta or compassion or joy. You know, it's not like it's up here with all that energy, but it's... So it's very, it's very solid, not, not in a sense of being solidified, but very... So the mind gets, the mind gets extremely steady in it. I would definitely encourage you to keep at it because in some way it's the most profound of the, of the Brahma Viharas. The question was how does the equanimity of the Brahma Viharas <coughs> differ from the equanimity of insight? Just before I comment on that, <laughs> you know, one of the things that's so amazing about the Buddha's teachings, the level of subtlety in understanding the mind is so astounding. Upandita gave a talk once, I can't remember on the number, the number exactly, but I think he took 10, 10 different kinds of equanimity, you know, all with just its own slant on things, to mention to comment on the two you mentioned, 
the equanimity of the Brahma Viharas. Now I'm sharing my personal experience of it. I don't know whether this actually is in accord <laughs> with the texts. Uh, but in doing the Brahma Viharas, it, it, it feels like uh, sort of we're, we're surrounded by or created a invisible protective shield so that as things are coming in, there's no reaction in the mind. So it's almost like we're just walking in a protected space. We're moving in a protected space. The equanimity uh, in the Vipassana practice for me has that same level, that same quality of evenness, of non-disturbance, but without the shield aspect, which really I think comes from, in the former, comes from the samadhi side of it. You know, we're really creating a protected space with the equanimity. And in the Vipassana, the equanimity is there in the midst of constantly changing phenomena. It's totally open, but with the same quality of non-reactiveness. There's a different flavor to it. What do you believe? <laughs> Leaving the question of free will aside, just putting that aside, do you have some connection with the idea that actions bring results? That's what it means that beings are the heirs of their own karma. It doesn't mean anything other than that that actions, the actions of being, beings, bring about certain results. That wholesome actions bring about good results, unwholesome actions bring about bad results. And I, I would just leave that whole question of free will and determination, I would leave it over here. <laughs> I'm curious to know where the idea of blame comes from. I mean, it's the understanding that in this mind stream, whether within this lifetime or over many lifetimes, that each of the actions performed bring about a particular kind of result. That's all. I mean, I would keep it just on that level. Rightfully speaking, 
there is no one to whom actions are happening. It's just action and result, action and result. Conventionally speaking, we talk about self and I and person and beings reborn, but that's just the conventional language. In more exact, precise understanding of how it's happening, and the Buddha described this in one of the suttas, there's action without an actor. There's doer without a do- doing without a doer. Suffering without anyone who suffers. Enlightenment without anyone who gets enlightened. Because it's just this process of action and result, action and result, action and result. And so the equanimity, the equanimity meditation, it's really in some way integrating the relative and absolute levels because we're using the language of beings as we do with all the Brahma Viharas. That's the relative level. We're using the language of beings with the wisdom of the more absolute understanding of action and results. So all beings are the heirs of their own actions. You could, you could rephrase it, all results come from previous actions. It's saying the same thing. In response to your question, and uh, my response may end up with a long discussion with Steve later, <laughs> where he corrects me. <laughs> but as I understand it, and really, he has Steve is more of a uh, an expert in Abhidhamma than I am. The way I understand it. Um, There are, there are many different natural orders at work. For example, I don't know whether Steve mentioned, but just a few of them, which are described in the text. The fact that if you plant, uh, if you plant a seed in the ground, you know, you plant an apple seed and you uh, get an apple tree, that's not a karmic result. That's, there's a natural order in, in, the language of that day. They called it sort of the, the nature or the order uh, of seeds, of things. Uh, I guess we, we could interpret it just in terms of biological understanding. There's the order of um, the effects of heat on the maturation of things. So these are not, car- these are just natural laws at work. Karma comes, and so much of what we experience is just the result of that. But the feelings we have, the feelings that are generated in our experience of these, whether we experience something as pleasant or unpleasant, that's the karmic result. So, so these are all working together. They're not... They're not operating in isolation from one another. I think the simplest way, and 
especially at this point of the retreat, you know, having uh, honed your mindfulness to an exquisite degree, <laughs> is simply to notice that, that really you don't have to do anything more than become mindful. Yes, right, for that moment. Well, it's really the same. It's 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 act. You mean in terms of the value of doing Brahma Vihara or switching? Yeah, I think in just the same way, and this is the great power of awareness, that awareness itself purifies the mind. You don't have to. If the awareness is there, you don't have to apply antidotes. Antidotes are the second. What's second wave of strategy? You know, the awareness, if you can pick up these slight uh, unwholesome mind states that sneak in, and you're just there and you're mindful of it, it's there and it's gone, and you're right back on track. And that's the tremendous uh, beauty of living in awareness, of living in mindfulness. The mind gets so tuned to when it's slightly chelacer-ridden. Uh, and it's, it's really quite amazing. It, it changes tremendously uh, the whole quality of our life. And we, we see that we don't have to get into a self-judgment. We don't have to start building up all these antidotes. It's just to notice. Why? Because everything is in its nature empty and impermanent. The danger in that situation is making more of it than it is.